1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 34. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you are come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died." But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Let's pray. Father, we sing about your love and the things that you've done for us and your grace and your mercy. We sing about your power, about your creation, about your wonder and your glory. Father, I pray that we would bask in your glory today and that we would revel in your word and that we would open up our hearts to be changed by you. You do not change to be like us, God. You demand and expect and help us to change to be like you. So as we read your words and as we hear the preaching, I pray that you would bless as Pastor Barry brings your truth from your word and that you would help us to change to be more like you, that you would make us more Christ-like, that you would soften our hearts and help us to be surrendered to you and in submission to you, that you'd help us to quell that rebellion that naturally springs up in our heart where we want to make ourselves king and God and sit on the throne of our heart, but God, that we would surrender to you, that we would kneel before your throne. So God, I pray that you would have sovereignty and preeminence in our hearts today. Amen. Thank you, Chris. I'd like to welcome any of you who may be visiting this morning. My name is Barry. I'm not the regular preaching pastor here at the church. Pastor Paul is that, uh, but it's, it's a long weekend and things are just a little bit different for us around here this week. We have been working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians, 
And so that is why that text was read this morning in the order of which we have been going through the book. And we made sure that it, this particular passage came on the first week of the month that would coincide with the Lord's table itself. When we come to the Lord's table, we put our feet into a very ancient stream of not just a tradition, of a ritual, it is a habit. And if the habit is not meaningful for us, it's not a reflection on a table, it's a reflection on our heart. But for hundreds of years, in fact, thousands of years, people have put their feet in this same stream to say the same words, to eat the same elements, and to look to the same Savior for the same purpose in the body of Christ. One of the things I like the table, I like about the table, is it seems to resist contemporization. And I might have just made a word up. But we don't seem compelled to put pretty clothes on it and make it more attractive to people like so many other components of our worship. And it's because the Lord's table speaks to us of a gospel that doesn't need dressing up, that doesn't need to be made to look attractive to us because it speaks to the deepest needs of our soul that we intuitively know. The need for forgiveness, the need for love, the need for reconciliation. And so the Apostle Paul speaks of this new covenant in a way, though, in a context that is being eaten with old habits. The meal that Paul is speaking of is a meal that reminds us of the hope of all of the scripture. It is a hope that can be summed up in one word. All of the scriptures, all of the hope of the scriptures can be summed up with the word covenant. And this is a covenantal table. And the covenant that God makes with us for all time rests entirely on the shoulders of one person. That person is Jesus Christ. It is a covenant that is new. It's new in the sense that it is new in its sufficiency new in the abiding presence of the Spirit, new in its eternal nature, new in the undertaking of God for all sides of the responsibility of it. But this new covenant represented at this table in Corinth was being eaten with old habits, the old habits of the Roman social Order. In other words, there was, there was something about the culture. There was something about the structure of Roman society, the old habits that was coming along with the meal that spoke of a new covenant. And that, that order was a hierarchy, and it's tragic when this happens. It was a hierarchy of dignity. But it's what we experience in the world around us. A hierarchy of dignity based on upon wealth. And Paul's displeasure is palpable. <laughs> Perhaps his jugular veins were showing a little bit as he, as he thought this through, and, and he's apoplectic. He's, he's just in shock of what he is hearing reports about what is going on in Corinth. 
I have a pair of old shoes at home that I wear around the house. I put them on as soon as I get home. I put them on as soon as I get up in the morning. They're old shoes. I've been wearing them for about 20 years, and they are now, they're old Birkenstocks. You know what Birkenstocks are? You know the sandals? I, there's, I, I've worn them in, and, and they're held together now with uh, a bit of duct tape and some construction glue, that yellow stuff, you know, that they put underneath plywood, and uh, some, some brad nails. No, not brad nails, but that would hurt. But you, you get the point. And I have a perfectly good brand new pair of shoes on the shelf beside it that I bought when I was on holidays about three years ago that I've never worn. <laughs> and the reason I don't wear those new shoes is the same reason why we bring our old habits into the church. It's easier. It's a lot of work to learn, break in something new, and it makes you sore for a while. And so it also, we feel the work when it comes to breaking old habits, habits that are so ingrained in us and so uh, affirmed in the world uh, around us. And so here's what I think the main point of the, of the text is. If you don't get anything else this morning, uh, and uh, please make sure that you, you get this. This is what I think the Apostle Paul wants to get across through the text that was read, that the Lord displays a wisdom at the table. And it's not an earthly wisdom. He displays a wisdom and a glory. And it's not our earthly glory. He displays a wisdom and a glory through this meal, which is diminished, and not only diminished, but also profaned. When our worldly wisdom and our, our habits of earthly glory prevail. That's what I think is going on in the text. Paul's saying, look at, he, there's, there's something being set before you and your life, your, your social structure, your relationships demonstrate the exact polar opposite. Early on in the book of uh, Corinthians, Paul established that this church is an enriched church, enriched with the treasures of God's wisdom. But, he makes plain, it is a wisdom that is upside down. It's upside down because it's in a kingdom that is upside down, where everything is reversed from what is valued in the world, the way that we think in the world. It's an upside down kingdom, and God's wisdom is an ups upside down wisdom, and his glory is peculiar to earthly glory. And he's been showing them that their habits are a reflection of their worldly wisdom and not Christ's wisdom. And now Paul shows that Nowhere is this more true than at the table, at this table, which displays for us this kind of upside-down wisdom, a glory of God that is different, very, very different than the glory of wealth, than the glory that we would bring into us with our old, in with us with our old habits. The weakness of Christ bringing salvation the poverty of Christ giving us riches. And so a lot of the text, particularly the words of the institution of the Lord's Supper, would be very, very familiar to us. But forgive us as ministers if we have implied somehow that the Bible is nothing more than a handbook for ministers or a handbook for life where we turn to the back, look under C, get communion so that we can recite the right words. That's not what is going on in these words. So we have a great opportunity this week to take those words of the institution and put them in the original context and see why is Paul talking about it in 
in the first place. It's not so that we would say the right words. It's so that we would understand what it looks like to have God's glory and wisdom in our presence, in, our, in the way that we deal in our regular lives with one another. What does it look like to live in God's wisdom? What does it look like? You ever stop sometimes and say, is my attitude, does it actually reflect? Is there a family resemblance to my Savior? And so three simple points. The table is a place of unity, it's a place of remembrance, and a place of examination. Unity, remembrance, and examination. Three simple words. First of all, unity. The table is not a private meal. It's a personal meal. It's a very personal meal. And I hope when you eat today, and I hope you do eat, that you will understand the personal nature of it for you and how Christ has died for you. But it is not a private meal. It is a corporate meal. It is a family meal. It is a, a group meal. And it means that the, the justice that we are reminded of in the meal should lead to a justice in our community. Now, the word justice is a bit of a, a, bit of a buzzword in our culture today. Everybody wants to be associated with justice. A lot of people will use the word justice in their taglines to describe their organization or their, their work or, and, and, and talk about justice. But for the church, ultimately, justice begins at this message that the table has for us, that God treats each of us as sinners, regardless of how great that sin might be, regardless of anything else in our life and how we might come to this table, he treats us exactly the same. There is no distinction between us in the way that God offers us his free gift of mercy and salvation. And the table displays that, that for us, and it should lead to unity. It should lead to justice in our relationships where there is injustice in our relationships in the world. The book of Proverbs says this, whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. Can you see both the foolishness and the danger that's implied even in that verse from Proverbs? The mock the maker. Roman meals had a way of mocking the poor Slaves did not have a day off. There was very distinct and clear differences in the social structures and the uh, opportunities that they afforded to gather for occasions like this. And they didn't have Sundays off. They didn't have days off like you and I have experienced for through the li our lifetime mostly, a day where we have the privilege of worshiping together. And there were people in the church community as the different church uh, households or different um, households that held church uh, through the week or through the month would gather together occasionally, probably in the home of one of the more wealthy members where there would be room for all of the people to gather. And there would be some who, because of their status in Roman society, would have to work and not come until after sunset and often bringing nothing with them, relying on the wealthy to prepare provisions. And they would go with nothing. Paul says. And Paul doesn't conceal his incredulity and pronounces a very strong word of disapproval. 
And later in the text, he'll go on to make it plain that the word disapproval in, in, in the presence of God, the biblical word for disapproval of God is the word judgment. And this is what he says about their table. He says that the table is not the Lord's table. The meal that you are eating isn't the Lord's meal. It's your meal. It's just, that's what it is. There's there's nothing more significant about the meal that you are eating other than the fact that it's, it's yours. It's not the Lord's meal. It's your meal. And the reason it's your meal is because it's reflecting your wisdom and you're bringing your glory to the table instead of receiving the wisdom and the glory that is counter to yours. And so that's what, that's what Paul says. The social structures that are established by worldly wisdom are abolished by this meal, not nourished by it. And it's not, it's not the Lord's table. It's astounding to grasp and see at times the capacity of religious people to think, to live, act, speak, have attitudes that are the exact polar opposites from the way that the Lord teaches us in the gospel. It reminds me of the our Lord's words to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 11, where he says this about their handling of the commandments. The commandments also something that belong to the Lord, just like this table belongs to the Lord, but they were being handled by men who didn't understand what the commandments were all about. And Jesus says something very similar to them. He says that your teachings, particularly about the Sabbath and honoring your mother and father, he says your teachings are nothing more than the doctrines of men. And Paul says the same thing about the table. In the midst of this fracture, Paul gives a hint of God's providence. Even hearing what he does coming out of Corinth, he says, I believe it, but it needs to be that way so that God's approval could be seen on some of you. And it's a reminder that where the devil is at work, the Lord's hand is not removed. It's a wonderful picture of the providence of God, of overruling the things that the devil tries to do in his dealings with his people. The character with which we face divisions puts on display, it shows, it, it, it manifests, it, it takes off the mask, it, it, it bears the, the reality of, of who we really are. Quite frankly, it shows who are sheep and who are people with sheep costumes on. Controversy, division, fractures. Will we revert to our old habits, the way that we speak in such circumstances, the way that we think in such circumstances, responding to our emotions and our feelings in the way that we are most naturally and comfortable inclined to do in a way that doesn't have a family resemblance to our Savior, but more a family resemblance to the devil. Someone asked me a long time ago, does everybody that goes to church a Christian? How would you answer that question? Wow. (laughs) 
You know the old saying that, you know, if you sleep in the garage, it doesn't make you a car, right? <laughs> I wish I was a car. <laughs> no, I don't. Rather than trying to figure out the answer to that question and judging people and examining people and looking at people and trying to, trying to sort that out, I think what would be best would be to just wait. <laughs> just wait. And churches just like the church in Corinth go through seasons, seasons of fracture, seasons of difficulty, where we display our true character and looking for the family resemblance of our Savior. So it's a place of unity. It's a place of justice. It's also a place of remembrance. Remembrance in the Bible has a very particular meaning. When Jesus commanded us to do this in remembrance of me, it isn't because that we've forgotten that Jesus died, just like the many different ways in which the word remember is used in the scripture. For example, in the, in, in the commandments, it says, you shall remember to keep the Sabbath. Well, it's not like it's only been six days. It's not like we've, we've forgotten something. And the Lord said to those gathering man in the wilderness, remember on the sixth day, remember not to gather on the seventh day. Well, it's, it's only been six days. It's not like you can't keep something in your head for that long. When you gather to eat the Passover meal, remember. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord delivered you with a mighty hand from Pharaoh. Well, how could you forget such an event? Well, Aspersion says it just shows that the human heart is like the bottom of a birdcage. It's, it's dirty. <laughs> and we do forget. We don't forget the events, but we easily forget the wisdom that is on display at God's table. And there's a lot to remember. There's a lot to remember because there is a lot of glory here. We remember the past, we remember the present, and we remember the future. We remember the past, obviously, because it represents a historical event, the death of Christ, real and in history, a death that was uniquely and wonderfully vicarious in nature, meaning that his death, the benefits of his death, is attributed to us. That's what vicarious means. It was for us. He died for us, and it's a, a wonderful words of the institution where the Apostle Paul reminds us of our Lord's words on, on the night that he was betrayed. He took bread and said, this is for you. It wasn't just one person that betrayed him. That person was out betraying them during the actual meal, but all of them in their hearts had the betrayal that would be manifest when, when the pressure would be put on them and they would all flee and abandon him. But remember this, that it's, it's for us. It's not because of us. That's, <laughs> that, that, that's an entirely different thing. Even us, our, us, even in our sin, are not the tail that wag the dog. God's actions are determined in his own 
well and purpose, but his purpose is that he would offer his son for us. And that's what happened in history. Secondly, we remember the glory of the present reality that represents a covenant that God has made with us. We walk in this world each and every day as a covenant people. And the table reminds us that God has shed the blood of his own son in order to dwell in the midst of us. That he, as Jeremiah 31 spoke of in, in, in the Old Testament, that he would put his law in our hearts and that we would know the Lord. That we would have union with our Lord. And so we're reminded of the present. We're also reminded of the future. It seems odd to be reminded of the future, but the Apostle Paul makes it very clear that there is a future event that we are reminded of every time we eat. Every time when we eat, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we need our eyes lifted to that glorious reality as well that our Lord not only died in history, not only abides with us now, but is also a coming Lord. And we proclaim him until he comes. And so it's a meal of remembrance. It's also finally a meal of examination. Perhaps we don't take time to emphasize this enough sometimes. And so it's good to have a week to just read through the entire context and, and notice how Paul speaks of not just remembrance and unity, but examination. A submission to the command to eat. And that's what it is. It's more than just an offering. It's a command to eat. And when we eat, we come under submission to our Lord's command to eat. And remember... to examine ourselves whether or not we are submitting to that wisdom or not. The condition of our hearts is their humility, is their repentance. Proverbs 16.5 says, everyone who is arrogant of heart is an abomination to the Lord. Don't eat with arrogance. It's an abomination to the Lord. Now, let me say something about this examination because I've, I've, I've seen a lot of things and experienced a lot of things and worked through a lot of things in my own heart and soul and practice over the years. So let me just speak a word pastorally about this idea of, of examination. It's not an examination to see if you are worthy of the table. Go ahead, look in your heart. Ask yourself, am I worthy to receive of the table? And while you're looking, I'll tell you, no, you're not. It's for sinners. It's for people who are entirely unworthy, but come with a repentant heart and saying, Lord, you forgive unworthy people. And Paul makes it very clear that the examination is for the manner in which we eat. The condition with which we eat must be with repentance and with humility before the Lord. And the manner with which we eat must be examined. 
It's not the question of whether or not you're a sinner. We're all sinners. And it's for you. His body was broken for you. It's a question of are you a repentant sinner? Are you a humbled sinner? Do you love your sin that clings to you so closely? Or do you long for it to be rid of it? Is it comfortable for you? And so I've, I would say eat, even in the distress of your sin. If you look to a Savior who is sufficient, and don't profane the Lord's table by doubting the sufficiency of his ability to forgive. Examining yourself does not make you worthy. There's nothing that we could do to be worthy of the table. It is given graciously to people who do not deserve it, but people who know they don't deserve it. Romans 8 makes very plain, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. Don't diminish, don't doubt his willingness, his ability to forgive, to wash, to make clean. Paul then does something that is consistently done through all of the scriptures by saying that some of you are sick and dying. Did you notice that? That maybe perplexed you a little bit. Like, whoa, um, didn't uh, wonder what, that, what that's all about. But it's actually something that is consistently done through all of the scriptures. And that is this. The Bible always assumes a profound connection between the material world and the unseen world. And that includes our bodies as a part of the material world. The Bible never allows a, a, a complete separation, a, a dichotomy between the world that is material and physical and the immaterial world that is spiritual and invisible. Paul isn't guided here by some pre-scientific su uh, superstition. He's guided by a view of the world that sees God in control of everything. Science never disproves God. Are you a scientist? Good, good for you. Don't let it let you think that it displaces God. God is only, or science only makes us marvel more over the details which God governs. And there are things that, that the Apostle Paul is speaking about here in terms of ill and ill health and disease and dying that we know a lot more about today through science. But it just speaks to the same reality, even though we more, know more details that God governs all of those things. The recent solar eclipse is a good example of that. The midday shade was not the moon, like some old superstition. It wasn't the moon fighting with the sun. It wasn't the, the north star coming out and, and wrestling with the sun. Rather, it was a display 
of the order and the preciseness with which God has put into his creation that allows scientists to predict years in advance and to know when and even where that eclipse would be seen. The preciseness is absolutely astounding. And we know way more details about all of those things now, but it just simply points to the same reality that God governs all of these things. Hurricane Harvey is the same thing. We know more about hurricanes than, than any previous generation ever. We can see them from space. We can, we can predict how much rain they're going to drop. We can tell what neighborhoods are going to be flooded and tell you to get out. But even though we know more details, it's still our confession that the Lord waters the earth. And so now we know a lot more about bits and pieces of the body than we did in the Apostle Paul's days. We know words like pancreas and prostate and, and all of those different things. And some of us are missing little pieces and, and, and bits here and, here and there. And we know a lot more about it. But we would confess the same truth. All the details do is show us more of what God governs. Now, Paul does not say that all sickness is from spiritual rebellion. That would be very wrong to uh, assume that of people who go through times of ailment and sickness. But, but, if God should so afflict us, it is a mercy of his discipline if it wakes us up. If it, if it strips us of our idols, if it makes us to reconcile the people who we were estranged from, if we're not living a life that displays the glory of God as we eat at this table, then it's a mercy of God that is disciplined to save us from sharing in the same condemnation as those who reject Christ. Those are difficult words, and it's a profound reality. In conclusion, I'll say this, that this meal is not merely offered to us, it is commanded for us. And there are a lot of different ways over the centuries that people have described how this meal is a help for us, and we do not venerate the elements or the, 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 the bread or the drink, but the help for us is not imaginary. It is real, and we need it. People talk about revival. To me, this is a table of revival. It's a table of renewal. For centuries, people have looked on the same things and seen the same glory, seen the same wisdom, been guided by the same elements to the same Savior, and we need it. We need it individually, we need it as a body. We need the real presence of Christ to put us in the very presence of his glory and his wisdom. It's a solemn event. It's also a joyful event. But Christianity is a glory religion. Do you know what I mean by that? It means that don't try to live the Christian life by rules. Don't misunderstand the Christian life merely as a matter of willpower. 
It is a glory religion, and we need to be exposed to, we need to see regularly something of the glory, even though it be an upside-down glory. We need to see it. It needs to be brought close to us. It needs to change us, obviously. There's no other way. I found a wonderful quote uh, this past week on the Lord's table that's this, if you are afflicted by your sin, there's comfort for you here. But if you are comfortable in your sin, then you must know that there is affliction for you here. It's a wonderful feast. I was reading through the book of Matthew recently, and at the end of a chapter where it speaks over and over of the glory of God being manifest in Jesus and his healing power, making dead people live, making blind people see, and all of the things that Jesus did to demonstrate his divine power, Matthew records these words of the crowd, that they glorified God and trembled. And it, it, you see, those two things go together. And glorify God and, and tremble at the same time. Psalm 34 says this, let the humble hear and be glad. Let the humble hear and be glad. Amen. Praise the Lord. Thank the Lord for this table. I'm going to pray, and those who are serving, while I pray, would you please come to the front, and then we will serve the meal immediately. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, bring us near, I pray. Bring us near again. Lord, if there is anything in our hearts that would be foolish, anything in our relationships that would reflect uh, a meager earthly wisdom, grant us the gift, I pray, of repentance. Spare us affliction, I pray. Give us hearts that are moved by your will. Help us as we eat. Gather us, I pray, as your people. May your hand be upon us. For Jesus' sake, amen.